And if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you might be able to find one in the seat back in front of you. Luke chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 this morning, which Kim read for us earlier. When my wife Anne was in her 20s, uh, she and some of her friends really wanted to get married, but they, they didn't want to just get married to be married. They had the wisdom to want to wait for the right person. And uh, they had a way of reminding one another that it was worth waiting. Um, and, and that was when there were... I didn't ask her permission to share this story because I knew it would be okay. <laughs> um, and I was out of town last week and I forgot to call her and ask her, so it'll be okay. A- anyway, so um, the... There were guys that they'd meet who clearly didn't have um, the character to be good husbands. And and what what they would, what Anne and her friends would say to each other about such guys was, better single forever than married to him. (laughs) Um, Right? Because uh, for those of us who are married, we know it's not so much about being married, it's about the one you're married to. And, And that relates to today's passage. Because so far in the story of Luke, Luke has told us about one who is coming, who would bring salvation, who would lead a new exodus, who would establish the kingdom of God. But it's, it's not as much about being saved or, or being rescued or joining a new kingdom as it is about the one who it is who is going to save us, who is going to rescue us, who is going to be our king, right? Well, in today's text, we finally get to meet him. So far in Luke's gospel, we've heard a lot about him. We've learned from an angel who visited Mary that he would be great, that he would be the son of God, that he would sit on the throne of his father David and reign over God's people forever and that his kingdom would never end. We learned from Zechariah that he would redeem his people, bringing God's powerful salvation, that he was the one prophesied about from of old through whom God would renew his covenant with Abraham, that this one would rescue God's people from their enemies, that he would allow them to serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness, and that in him light would shine on those in darkness and uh, guide their feet in paths of, of peace, of shalom. We learned from Simeon, if you've read, we didn't go through all these passages on Sunday mornings, but if you've read the introduction to Luke, we learned that he would be a light for revelation to all peoples, even the Gentiles. And from John the Baptist, we learned that he would lead his people on a new exodus out of captivity. And John warned us that he comes not only to save and to forgive our sins and to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, but also to judge with fire. And so John cautioned us that we should prepare the way for him by repenting, by turning around, by taking a new perspective on life, and especially by reorienting our jobs and our finances to be in keeping with his kingdom and his priorities. Because as we learned from his mother Mary back in Luke 1, through her son, God would bring down rulers from their thrones and lift up the humble. God would fill the hungry with good things but the rich would be sent away empty. And we saw that Jesus was then born in a lowly manger to an unknown, unregarded teenage girl. 
and that he was announced to outcast shepherds as, as being their kind of king. Then we met him ever so briefly as a boy, and we saw that even as a youth, he would rather be nowhere else than in God his Father's house. And then at his baptism last week, we finally met him as a man very briefly, and we saw that God declared him to be his own beloved son, and God bestowed on him God's spirit. And finally, we reviewed his genealogy, and we saw that he had all the right credentials, that he was son of God, son of David, and son of Adam, and so one of us all. But now, we're ready to really get to know him. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet this Jesus we've heard so much about? When we meet Jesus this morning, he's in the desert, being led there by the Holy Spirit. And this is what you'd expect of an exodus, right? John said this is a new exodus. After all, in the first exodus, the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. And if you read Isaiah 63, it says there that God's Spirit led them in the desert during that time. And now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is being led by the Spirit in the desert, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. Also, Deuteronomy 8 tells us how God humbled his people in the desert, causing them to hunger before feeding them with manna. And so now Jesus is hungering in the desert, having not eaten for these 40 days. What's the point? Well, before Jesus leads anyone else on a new exodus, he experiences it himself. In this story, Jesus is, is taking the place of his people. He's retracing their steps. He's experiencing what they experienced and identifying with them, with us. Because that's the kind of leader that he is. And, and what we'll see is that while God's people were tested in the desert and they failed every test, Jesus will be tested in the desert as well. And Jesus will succeed and he'll do it for us. Well, then we get a surprise because no sooner does Jesus step onto the stage to inaugurate our salvation when out of nowhere, out pops the devil. Where did he come from? <laughs> I mean, Luke has made no mention of the devil so far. He's given us no hint or warning, but suddenly the devil's there. As soon as Jesus appears, the devil appears. Why is this? Well, what we quickly realize in this passage is that the devil is really the one who stands behind the rulers of the world. Look at verse 5. The devil has Jesus look at all the kingdoms of the world. Now this word world um, here can be translated empire because it refers not to the physical world but rather to the people of the world. And, and the same word, uh, it's the same word that Luke uses back in the Christmas story, chapter 2, verse 1, when he speaks of the whole Roman world. And now the devil is having Jesus look at all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the empire. At the domain of Caesar, ruler of the Roman Empire, and of Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, of Herod, Tet the tetrarch of Galilee, of Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis of Lysenius, Tetrarch of Abilene, of Annas and Caiaphas, high priests in Jerusalem, all the kings and the kingdoms of the empire that Luke has told us about in Luke 3, if you go back to that story. The devil shows Jesus all of these, and, and then he says these breathtaking words, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Did you hear that? <laughs> 
The devil is claiming that Caesar isn't really the one who rules the Western world. That it isn't Pontius Pilate and Herod, Philip and Caiaphas, who have sole authority over these kingdoms. No, the devil is admitting that behind their authority is his influence. These are his kingdoms, in a sense, to give as he chooses, and the human figureheads that we see are guided by the devil, whether they realize it or not. Now here's the key point from this. The kingdoms of this world are not neutral. They're not benign, at least not completely. We look at them and we see their glory and their splendor and we're awed and we're impressed. But Luke invites us to look at them and also to see their oppressiveness and their injustice and to recognize it for what it is, satanic. Luke has already told us that that Jesus is supposed to come and establish a far different kind of kingdom from these. One which is, is not for the great and for the mighty, but which is for the weak and for the needy. As I've been putting it, Jesus' kingdom is to be a surprising kingdom, a mixed up kingdom, an upside down kingdom. And we'll have to see if Jesus succeeds in in establishing this kind of kingdom because immediately Jesus is tempted to do otherwise. Isn't that amazing? The first thing we see about Jesus when we meet him is that he was tempted. Jesus wasn't a Teflon man who walked two feet above the ground. No, just like us, he faced temptations. He faced pulls on his heart to do the wrong thing, to to take shortcuts, to make compromises. As we, uh, if you look at the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we read that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are. And so Hebrews tells us Jesus is able to empathize with our weaknesses. Do you struggle to do what's right, like I do? Jesus has been there. He's struggled. He's felt the tug of temptation. And it's through these temptations that Jesus faced that we get amazing insight into what kind of king he is. We also learn right up front that ministry and leadership has to begin with character. I mean, it's all very nice that Jesus has all the qualifications to be God's great king. That he's descended from David, that God's favor and God's spirit are on him, that he's the son of God whom God has called to this task. But if Jesus doesn't have the character, the the inner goodness and strength to do this job properly, then his kingdom will turn out to be just one more oppressive regime. So it's the inner battle that Jesus must fight and must win and that we must fight and must win before Jesus can fight any of the outer battles that God has called him to. And so it's to Jesus' inner life and to his character that we turn first. Jesus faces three temptations in the story. The first is to use power without trusting God. The second is to gain authority without being a servant. And the third is to trust God without submitting to him. So let's look at each of these. First, Jesus is tempted to use power without trusting God. 
the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. 40 days. You know, I, I looked it up. A lot of people won't survive if they don't eat for 40 days. It's anywhere between 30 and 60 days before you die of starvation. By this point, Jesus is skin and bones. He no doubt looks sick and, and gaunt. Um, his health may be failing at this point. And how did Jesus get to this place of near starvation? By following God, following God's spirit. God has done this to him. Is this how God cares for his children? If Jesus doesn't eat soon, he will die. Does Jesus even have enough strength to get back out of the desert to where there's food before it's too late? Jesus is in a very precarious, life-threatening situation here. But I know what you're thinking. Jesus will be okay because Jesus is God. He can do anything. And that's exactly the thought the devil puts into Jesus' head. And so Jesus finds himself thinking, why let myself die of hunger? I'm God's son. I'm God's special one. I have power, great power, divine power, so much power. I could tell that stone over there to become bread, and it would, and I could eat it and be okay. Isn't that what most of us would do in this situation if we had that kind of power? I mean, we'll follow God to a point. But when push comes to shove, we tend eventually, to, when pressed, to take matters into our own hands. Especially when we've waited and we've waited for God and God has shown no sign of coming through for us. And so then we say, well, God had his chance and God let me down. Now I'm going to take care of myself. This is exactly what Jesus finds himself thinking. And yet Jesus recognizes that it's a temptation of the evil one. And so Jesus refuses to use his own power apart from trusting in God. Jesus remembers that it was God's spirit who led him to this place. And, and so this is, must be where God wants him to be. Jesus has placed himself in God's hands and God will have to make sure that he doesn't starve. And so Jesus quotes scripture, which is the best way to resist temptation, because God's word helps us to see things clearly, to, to remember who God is and, and what God has to say. It is written, Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, God's word says there's something even more important to life than food. And that's true even after 40 days of hunger. What's the more important thing? Trusting God. Jesus will not use his, power, use his power apart from trusting God. Jesus realizes that his power is not given to him. He doesn't have it for himself. It's to be used according to God's purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I face this temptation all the time. Because we Americans are powerful people. We can press a few buttons and talk to someone anywhere in the world. We can uh, go online or walk into a store and uh, have almost anything we want delivered to our door. We can eat what we want to eat when we want to eat it. We can ensure and protect what's important to us. 
We can even control the temperature of our living spaces. We have a lot of power. But here's the question. Do we use that power apart from trusting God? I faced this temptation a couple weeks ago. I was reviewing our family expenses, and um, I realized that our, own, our old green station wagon was costing us a lot in repairs and uh, a lot in gas because it wasn't that efficient. And I started doing the math, and I realized that if we got a newer, more fuel-efficient used car, we might, it, it might actually pay for itself in the matter of a few years. And I realized I had the power to get that car. I had the power of information to research it on the internet, um, and I had the power of money to be able to get it. And I decided that that would be a good idea. Uh, I thought about it, I, I prayed about it, I rechecked my numbers, and I decided that it would be a wise and responsible decision to upgrade our car. And then I went online and I found a car that was an excellent price. Um, and I decided we should do this. But there was one problem, and that was that Anne wasn't so sure. <laughs> Anne was uncomfortable with us spending so much money. But I was sure, and I had all of my reasons, and she didn't want to disappoint me, so reluctantly she agreed that I'd go and I'd see this car, and so I made an appointment to go see it the next morning. Um, but then I went to one of the nights of prayer a couple weeks ago at CBC, and um, uh, while we were praying, God convicted me. Um, it was a kairos moment, you could say, for those of you who are familiar with that language. I realized I'm not trusting God here. Sure, I was being responsible, I was being wise, but I wasn't trusting God. I hadn't really asked God for guidance, and I hadn't really put the situation in God's hands. And so I went home, and I talked to Anne, and I gave her the freedom to tell me what she really thought. And she really, what she thought was, she was not comfortable with this. Um, and so I called the first thing the next morning and I canceled the appointment. And I told God, God, I, I'm trusting you. I thought this was a, a great car, um, but you're going to have to make this happen some other way. Um, and then a couple hours later, the salesperson called back and said, you know, I, I talked to my manager and he's willing to drop the price even further if you're still interested in the car. And so I called Anne, and, and by this time, she'd had more time to think about it. She'd looked over all the numbers that I had crunched about how this eventually was going to pay for itself and be a good uh, investment. Um, and, and when she heard the new price, she said, okay, that sounds good to me. So um, we wound up getting the car um, for less than I even expected to get it. Now, I can tell you, it doesn't always turn out that way when you trust God. <laughs> Plenty of times when I've trusted God, I have not gotten the thing I wanted. And a few times when I've trusted God, I've gotten something even better than what I thought I wanted. But the important thing isn't whether we get what we want or not. The important thing is that we please God. And that uh, we experience peace and we experience God's blessing when we know that we're walking in faith, trusting in our Heavenly Father for what we need instead of using our power to accomplish our own agenda. And, and that's what we see Jesus does so well in the story. He possesses immense power, but he never uses it apart from trusting in God's guidance God's purposes, God's direction. 
That's why we can trust him to be our king and our savior and why he's our model to teach us how to trust God too. Second temptation. Jesus is tempted to gain authority without being a servant. Let's remember that Jesus was not raised in a middle-class home. Jesus was raised by poor, marginalized people, by a mother and a father who, who saw the world really differently than most of us see it. Mary's song, if you go back to Luke 1 and read it again, it's proof of that. Jesus grew up in, in a small town among common people who daily experienced fear and oppression from the Roman Empire and all of their minions. And, and these people were longing for a radical political and economic upheaval, a day when the poor would be raised up and the mighty would be brought down. And it's against that backdrop, I think, that we have to understand the second temptation that Jesus faces. The devil somehow instantly causes Jesus to see the mighty Roman world, perhaps the whole world beyond that as well, with all of its rulers and its kingdoms. Maybe this is a daydream, maybe it's a vision. And Jesus sees all of this authority and all of this splendor. Splendor, isn't that striking? Jesus grew up in a neighborhood where Rome and its kingdoms represented not splendor, but oppression and fear and pain. But the devil causes Jesus to see the splendor, the, the magnificent side of power, the side that most of us see who live among the rich and the powerful. In Jesus' case, perhaps it was splendor like the Roman Colosseum and the Arch of Titus and well, I guess it wasn't the Arch of Titus because that hadn't happened yet. But um, the great aqueduct, the, the marching Roman legions. And Jesus thinks this could all be mine, this authority, this splendor. All I have to do is obey and, and worship the devil who presides over all this. This is a temptation for, for Jesus to turn his back on his upbringing. To, to reject the teaching of his godly mother. To, to walk away from his people. and To leave behind a life of oppression. And to become the oppressor. Or, or perhaps to use his newfound authority to help those he's left behind. To, to help his mom. To help his family. To help his neighbors. Maybe that's how Jesus could rationalize it. Much like Anakin Skywalker did for those of you who are Star Wars fans. Before he became Darth Vader. There was only one problem though. And that was to do so would be to worship the devil. Which isn't a problem for many rich and powerful people today. Though they don't know they're worshiping the devil. Again God's word comes through like a voice of sanity. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship God. Now today, we tend to think of, of worship as singing songs, but the worship in the Bible is much more political than that. Uh, to worship literally means to bow down to. It means to, to obey, to give your allegiance to. And, and Jesus has a choice here about whose rule he's going to follow. The devil who's offering him splendor and authority or God who's letting him starve in the desert. God who, who chose for him to be born into a people who are poor and deprived and oppressed so that Jesus could suffer with them 
and for them, becoming less than all of them as a servant. Which way would you choose? Which way do you choose every day? Do you choose authority without the servanthood? Well, I, I face this temptation as a pastor. Because as a pastor, I know enough that my job isn't to be a people pleaser. Um, I've had it drummed into me by my seminary education, by ministry books that I read, that I won't really be serving people well if, if I just do what they want me to do, if I just go along with what's popular or what will make people happy or like me. No, no, I'm supposed to be a leader. I'm supposed to be an example. But, but then immediately, here's the next temptation. If I can break free from people's expectations and, and I can have some say over how I do ministry, then what am I going to do with that leadership, with that authority? Am I going to serve myself and do what I want and what benefits me? Or am I going to use that freedom and that authority to obey God by serving his people? It's a daily temptation. How about you? Whatever authority you have uh, at work or in your family or um, with your friends, how do you use it? Do you use it for your own benefit, for your own security, for your own popularity? Or do you use it in obedience to God, to serve others, to lay down your life for others. Well, that's the way our king chooses. And to follow him, to step into his kingdom, is to learn to follow in that way as well. Okay, finally, third temptation. The temptation to trust God, but without submitting to God. And this one is subtle. It's, it's a temptation um, that too many of us seldom face because we seldom overcome the first two temptations. <laughs> if we never trust God with our power, if we never use our authority to serve, then we will probably not face this third temptation. This third one is a distinctly religious temptation. Here the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem somehow and, and puts him on the highest point of, of the temple where it towers over a deep valley below. A fall from this height to the rocks below would mean certain death. And Jesus is tempted to jump. Why? Well, I suspect it's because to jump would be to force God's hand. After all, God has been very distant these past 40 days. God has provided nothing for Jesus to eat. God hasn't given Jesus authority like Rome's to solve the world's problems or to let Jesus enjoy splendor. So how is Jesus ever going to become the great king he's prophesied to become this way? But maybe there's another way. After all, God has promised in his word, Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus knows he can trust God's word. And so based on this scripture, if Jesus jumps, God will have to show up. God will have to come to rescue Jesus. All the more so because this is a very public place. It's the temple. Can you imagine the public relations nightmare that God would face if Jesus, he let Jesus fall and die? 
you can just see the headlines the next morning. God fails, leave sons flattened at, or leave son flattened at base of temple. No, God would have to act to come through for Jesus. And when God acted to miraculously save his son, then everyone would see it. And then Jesus' ministry would really get on track. This is a temptation to trust God, but to do it without a spirit of submissiveness. And Jesus recognizes this is wrong by quoting scripture a third time. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not set the agenda for God. Do not call the shots and expect God to jump when you say jump. No, if you really trust God, then submit to God and let God lead in God's way and in God's timing. Now, how do we face this temptation today? Well, how about this? I can eat however I want to eat because God will make sure my health doesn't fail. Or... Um, I can drive home drunk. God will protect me. Or um, I can sin. God will still forgive me. Or um, I can marry him. God will make sure he starts treating me better than he's treating me right now. I've even know, known a few people who've said, I can quit the job that I hate because God will get me another one. And in all of these cases, we're trusting God, but we're not submitting to God. We're, we're setting our own agenda. We're being presumptuous and we're expecting God to bail us out. But God is not an errand boy to be trifled with this way. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he resists the temptation to jump. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom where we don't use our power to care for ourselves, but we trust God for our daily bread. Where we don't use authority except to serve others. And where we trust God only in submission to God's will for us. That's what Jesus does. And that's why he's fit to be our king, to be our savior, to claim our allegiance, and to be the example that we follow as we learn to be like him, as we learn to live as his children in his kingdom.